Please uh, turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 4. And as you're turning there, how many of you remember uh, the first time or perhaps a time that was especially surprising when you saw an actor or performer who didn't end up being the kind of person you would have assumed after watching them on the screen or on the stage after a time? Perhaps, perhaps they always play the villain. And then it turns out in real life they're a really nice person, really kind. Or maybe they play the hero in all of their films and then you find out not so much in real life. That can happen, right? I remember I was, when I was pretty young, uh, watching a Tigers game with my dad and his favorite player when he was growing up was Al Kaline. Uh, Al Kaline I think passed away just this last year, but a Hall of Fame baseball player for the Tigers. By the time I was young and growing up, Al Kaline was one of the announcers. He was in the booth uh, talking about the game. And he was interviewing a man during one of the innings talking about the game, talking about the stuff they'd done together, like going golfing together and things like that, talking about how this man had been coaching his son's Little League Baseball team that summer. And they were laughing together as they were having this conversation. And and Al Kaline asked this gentleman, if any of the parents, the parents from that baseball team, had been opposed or had complained about him being the coach. And you might be thinking, why would anyone oppose this, this nice guy who evidently had access to Al Kaline and, and access to the broadcast booth of a Tigers game? Why wouldn't a parent want him coaching their boys' Little League baseball team? Well, as it turned out, that kind gentleman was heavy metal singer Alice Cooper. It was Alice Cooper. And it turns out, uh, when Alice Cooper isn't on stage in his makeup and singing his songs, evidently now he hangs out with uh, old guys wearing polo shirts tucked into their khakis every day, go golfing with them, you know, and coaching little boys' little league baseball teams. That's what he does. Who knew, right? Uh, the stage performance was just that, a, a performance And not everything we see truly reveals the heart of the person. Not just on the stage, but also in real life. Before we jump into our passage today, let's let's make sure that we've got our heads around just where we are here in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We've been working through Matthew 5, uh, 6, and 7. We're in this process. And and back in chapter 5, in verses 21 through 48... We've just finished this section where Jesus gave six examples of how the scribes and the Pharisees, the rabbis, the Jewish teachers, religious leaders of the Jewish people, how they had twisted up the Old Testament law. We had six instances of Jesus saying, you have heard that it was said, and then, but I say to you, meaning you've been taught this, and then fill in the blank, but... Jesus would say what the word of God was really teaching all along with the spirit of the law, it was always this. And it's helpful to remember that Jesus had had preceded these six examples of the false teaching of the scribes and Pharisees by saying, back in verse 20 of chapter 5, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So if we put all these things together... Are we to read verse 20 there and and think, man, I've got to be even better than them? Well, no, that that wouldn't be a right understanding. Instead, what we realize in Matthew 5, 21 through 48, is that the the quote-unquote righteousness 
of the scribes and Pharisees was not righteousness at all. Uh, what it was was a skewed form of uh, how they would define it as righteousness that they felt they could do. It was something that they felt they could fulfill, but it was not God's standard. And it's easy to like change the rules so that I can do it all and feel like I'm very righteous, right? Does it make, make sense? But it wasn't God's standard. So when we look back at those examples from Matthew 5, 21 to 48, concerning the issues of anger, uh, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, how we treat our enemies, what Jesus is revealing to us and to that original audience is how man's heart, man's desires, man's motives are revealed to us through what we teach. Somebody asked, why, why was the teaching of their religious leaders so self-centered, so selfish? Well, you do the math, right? They taught that way because that's where their heart was. Now we move into chapter 6, and Jesus is continuing in this line of thinking. Except we aren't going to look at the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, instead, we're going to start looking into their actions. Not what they teach, but what they do. Okay, so do you have all that ordered in your mind? Jesus says, uh, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, and then shows how the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees was not righteousness. And now he's going to show that the actions of the scribes and Pharisees is also not righteousness. Their teaching and their actions fell short, which, which makes sense if you think about it, right? Uh, if they're following their own teaching, and if their teaching isn't righteousness, then what should we expect them to do? do. If their teachings serve their own selfish purposes, guess what their religious activities are going to serve? And if you guess their own selfish purposes, high five, you got that one right, okay? And all of this goes back to our motivation. It's a matter of the heart. Why do I want to do anything good? What, what's my goal? Whose glory am I seeking? Whose good Am I truly seeking? And as we look through these examples over the, over the next three weeks, this and the next two, uh, we also want to ask ourselves these big picture questions. How does the gospel change the way I think about doing good for others? And, and how does the gospel free me to do good things for the right reason? Not just to do good things, but to do them for the right reason. Christians, there is a lot of joy to be had in doing good things for the right reason. And we want to learn that as we grow in God's grace. Okay, so this is where we're headed in chapter 6, Matthew 6. Matthew 5, six examples of unbiblical self-centered teaching. Matthew 6, 2 through 18, three examples of self-motivated acts of righteousness and, and what it would look like to do it right. It's helpful to know, too, uh, the main three forms of Jewish piety. The three religious activities that had that wow factor amongst the people at that time were, one, almsgiving, giving to the needy, two, prayer, and three, fasting. If you, if you were giving to the needy, if you prayed like the best of them, if you were fasting and everybody knew you were fasting, whoa, you are spiritual. Okay, guess what three actions Jesus is going to teach on here? <laughs> verses 2 through 4, almsgiving. Verses 5 through 15, prayer. 
verses 16 through 18, fasting. Okay? So with all that said, let's jump into verse 1. We're going to look at the almsgiving today. And verse 1, though, contains the warning, a warning and a guarantee that applies to all three examples. So verse 1 sets the stage for all of these first 18 verses, okay? But we'll get through verse 4 today. The warning and the guarantee here from verse 1. Beware. Jesus says, beware. And this word translated as beware, it means to take hold of something, to grab onto it, to pay close attention to it. You're grabbing it to study it and to look into it, okay? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So right off the bat, we can say this, uh, because we know that God is everywhere present, that God is all-knowing, if we're waiting around idly, or even doing wrong when we think that we're alone, and waiting to practice righteous acts until we can be sure that we're being seen by other people? Well, something's not right there, is it? Something's wrong. Our thinking, our priorities are out of whack. And here we see Jesus' emphasis on our motive. Are we doing good deeds, caring for those who are in need in order to be seen by people, or are we motivated by love and to the glory of God? The Greek word translated as to be seen, we have those three words in our English translation, to be seen. And that Greek word, I won't try to say it, but it starts with the Greek leaders that are, Greek letters that are equivalent to T-H-E-A. And it's the word that we get the English word theater from, or theatrics, to be seen. Now these actions that are done, only when and in order to be seen by others, it's nothing more than religious theater. Actors on a stage, uh, pretending to be someone they are not for the applause of man. Another thing to keep in mind as we move forward, the word reward. In English, reward is found three times in our passage today. But they're not the same word. There's actually two Greek words that are translated as reward three times. Okay, And the word translated as reward in verse 1 and verse 2, it means uh, a word, the word it means wages paid. It's a paycheck. I did this work, so you owe me my paycheck. Okay? The idea Jesus is conveying here is that people who are only doing these righteous deeds in order to be seen by others, in order to receive the praise of man, their approval, man's applause, they are also going to view reward from God as something that God owes them. I did my time, I put in my hours, I did good things, and when they get to the judgment, they should expect to receive their remuneration, to get their paycheck, and to not get it or to get shorted by God, well, that would just be unacceptable. He owes me. That kind of a mindset, okay? You see why Jesus would use that word there. But he doesn't use the same word in verse 4 when he talks about the reward believers will receive. It's a different word entirely. I'll wait till we get there to tell you what it is, okay? Now, on to verses 2 through 4, which contains our instruction and another guarantee. Verse 2. Thus, when, notice it doesn't say if, but when. The question here is not if we will give, 
It is assumed that followers of Christ will love people as they have been loved. So not if, but when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, paycheck. They've received their paycheck. What they, what they believe they are owed by God has already been paid in full by the praise of man. Verse three, but when you give to the needy, do not let their, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, so let's, let's start out with what not to do. What not to do. First here, Sound no trumpet before you. At a first glance, this might look like the idea of having some walk-up music before you do your good deed. Back to the baseball analogies here. You know, when you, when you get to go to a baseball stadium and watch the game, and before that next batter comes up to bat, they take that long walk, that music, they like the certain song and they want that song to play every time they go up to bat. It's their walk-up music. Uh, maybe a pitcher, a relief pitcher comes in. They want to have, you know, like Wild Thing or something like that playing over the speakers when they go up there to pitch. Uh, or like some, uh, some, some of you who might be in college or getting close to being done with high school, that pomp and circumstance. You're waiting for that song so that you can walk into that room or that stadium for your graduation ceremony. You might think of someone hiring a band or bringing their Bluetooth speaker or something like that to play a little ditty before they make a donation to the local food bank. Make sure everybody hears, this is coming, this is my tune, this is my thing, this is what I'm doing. Everybody pay attention. Maybe they're handing, uh, getting a picture taken of them, uh, of their three-foot-long check as they pose with the recipient of their generosity, right? Something like that. You know, tooting your own horn. That principle, that saying. But what actually happened back then in Israel, it wasn't quite like that. What actually happened back then in Israel is that at the beginning of their scheduled fasts, so they were doing these on schedule, on purpose, these fasts, and in this uh, particular example, it was during the planting season for farmers. What they would do, they would signify the start of the fasting period by the blowing of a trumpet or the blowing of horns. And the trumpet sound blaring out was supposed to be the signal for everyone participating to start their fasting. So how do we all know when to start? When you hear the horns blast, you know it's time to stop eating food. And then during that scheduled fast, people would start praying. Not in their homes. They'd go out to the square, to the street, and they would pray out there in public. And, and specifically in this example, for God to send rain. They wanted rain to come so that they would have a great crop that year. Does that make sense? And, and in your prayers... The more eloquent, the better, right? The, the fancier you pray, the more God's like, yeah, I'm going to answer that. That's how that works, isn't it? Okay? And then they really wanted to show how serious they were when they wanted to show just how serious about their prayers and their fasting. Almsgiving. Giving to the needy. It was believed to ensure that all their hard work would prove effective. So if you gave alms, your prayers and fasting, they would hold even more weight with God and, and you were more likely to get a good result. So all three events coincided with each other in this time. And their start was proclaimed by these trumpets, these horns. And everyone there was there to watch. 
There are people watching all this to be impressed. They had to be impressed by all this spirituality. These religious men, after all, they were saving their livelihood, praying so eloquently, fasting so aggressively, uh, giving so much to the needy. God was going to hear their prayers and it was going to save our businesses and our farms. These guys are awesome, right? That was the idea. So when the trumpet sounded, the curtains went up. It was showtime. Now, since, as far as I know, uh, none of us actually expect music to play, to grab everybody's attention when we go do good deeds, that would be kind of weird, right? I think we would all think that now. That doesn't mean we don't do something, right? Here, here are three subtle and perhaps humorous, looking at it in this context, but three subtle ways to blow the trumpet or to toot your own horn. And these are going to sound a little ridiculous, but we do it, okay? We, we find ways. So one, one example. Telling people not to tell anybody because you don't want anybody to know. Did you catch that? I heard some of you caught it. I don't want anybody to know, so, so I'm telling you to make sure you don't tell anybody. And I might tell John, too, just to make sure it doesn't get around. Uh, this could also happen in the form of a prayer request, right? It could happen in the form of a prayer request. Uh, how about this example, number two? Sometimes we can criticize others for blowing their trumpet. Can you believe that guy going around bragging about himself? I'm glad I don't do that when I do good deeds. Uh, I gave twice as much as him and I didn't tell anyone. Oh, but don't tell anyone, right? The combo. Number three, how about this? Maybe getting upset with your friend or your spouse. Maybe even give them the cold shoulder for the rest of the evening because they dared not tell other people what you did so that you could both get praise and remain humble, right? I got to remain humble, so you got to tell them for me. That might be another way to do it. I'm sure we could think of more. But you get the idea. Uh, this, this isn't an issue of trumpets. It's an issue of the heart. Uh, so, so if praise is what we want, if we really want to be affirmed by people, we'll get super creative, won't we? We'll think of ways uh, to get that, to garner that praise. Of course, uh, you cannot clamor for praise and remain humble at the same time. And this is why Jesus called those who heard the trumpets and knew it was showtime hypocrites. Call them hypocrites. And the word hypocrite comes straight from the Greek word Hippocrates. And the word refers to an actor. That Greek word is the word for an actor in a play. Uh, someone who's pretending to be what they're not. But even by the first century, by the time Jesus is speaking here at the Sermon on the Mount, this word had come to be used in much the same way that we use the word hypocrite today. Uh, they would have used this word to refer to someone who saw the world as their stage. Someone who acted differently in public than they would have in private. And so the force of the term, calling these men hypocrites, it was the same then as it is now. But we should make this distinction. Actors, actors in a play, they know that they're not the person they're pretending to be. Unless they're getting really too deep into their method acting, they know they're not really that character they're portraying. In the same way, um, most people who are acting hypocritically, they're not knowingly being evil in faking goodness. 
though this certainly can and does happen. You could argue the Pharisees did this when they were trying to trap Jesus in their questions. Uh, but many people, we, we just get duped into thinking that we're that great. <laughs> I am pretty awesome, actually. We can get carried away uh, by the prospect of glory. Sometimes we're just simply satisfied with our own expectations of righteousness. We've come far enough, and I'm pretty satisfied, and therefore don't have any desire to grow any further. And so we feel and think that we're super righteous, and maybe not so much. In Matthew 7, we see the example of the man who sees a speck, remember, in his brother's eye, and he calls him out for it, criticizes him, failing to notice that there is an entire beam sticking out of his own eye. And most likely, if you're walking around with a beam in your eye, other people might notice that. But because of our pride, we can totally miss it. We're blind to it, or we reclassify it. And instead of sin, we might call it a habit, or a tendency, or maybe a character flaw that at least makes it sound like it's something that's not good, right? But people do notice, and it can turn people off to the gospel, turn them off to Christ, to the church. And, and when we hear something like that, and we can tend to just immediately think of uh, another person, other people who do that, and if we hear about that idea and our minds shoot straight for other people who do it, what might we have just done? May God give us humility. Open our eyes to the truth and, and continue to grant us repentance so that we can shine brightly for him. Uh, sometimes, though, that beam, that beam can become fashionable. And not only do we not notice that it's a problem, but others start to want the same one, too. The one being the hypocrite is deceived and, and many of the onlookers buy in and they're also deceived as well. Uh, imagine if those watching the hypocrite at work, if they desire that same praise of man, they want the same goal and they see that hypocrite achieve praise. He got what I want. By his hypocrisy, what will they start to think about his actions? It worked. If I want praise the most, if I want affirmation and attention most, then whatever I have to do to get it in my mind can turn into good. What might be a bad thing to do becomes a good thing to do because it brings about my desired goal. Does that make sense? The ends end up justifying the means. And the Pharisees might have said, hey, people, people are respecting their religious leaders. Their donations are up in the temple. Attendance is way up during our fasting days. People are practicing their prayers to try to sound just like me. This is so good. But because the praise of man was more significant than the glory of God, and the praise of man for himself, or the appearance of success, the appearance of success before men, was more important than the glory of God, and the true good of those people. Can we really say that more money, higher attendance, greater participation was automatically a good thing? Was it truly success or were these religious leaders actually leading a, gr a large group of people astray? That would be a calamity, not a success. Was God leading those people to this teaching? 
Or had the Pharisees taken what were actually beams in their eyes, the desires for the praise and affirmation of man, and and then used that beam as bait to fish for more followers or really more fans? In that way, we might say that appealing to the flesh, promising people they'll get what they want selfishly, and offering that to the world, what's usually going to work much better than preaching repentance. If, 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 your goal and definition of success is sheer numbers and affirmation. That's what I mean by work better, okay? But, if your goal is the glory of God and the genuine salvation of lost souls to make disciples of Jesus Christ, and you point people to Jesus and lovingly share the gospel with them, compassionately share the gospel with them and encourage them to repent and follow Christ, that might cut your numbers down, but it will yield more genuine fruit. Now, the teacher in me requires that I bring up the other side of this coin. Okay, The temptation is to hear the preacher say that kind of stuff and go, yeah, that's right. I've heard some people in other churches say something along the lines of, that's why I don't, we don't ever want lots of people around here. Because lots of people means you compromised. That's not always true. Sometimes lots of people means revivals happening. And Lord, start the work in me. Sometimes little numbers means that people are just being selfish and prideful and demanding that everything goes their way. Refusing to get their own beams out of their eyes, and so nobody else wants to play along with that. And so it's not about numbers, just like it wasn't about trumpets. It's not about numbers. It's not about whether uh, you'll give or whether you'll do good deeds or not. Remember, Jesus said when, not if. This is all about genuine, sincere love for God and love for others, which motivates us to do what is right for the right reason, for God's glory and for people's good. And in that, we also get joy. Praise God. Now, what about this figure of speech in verse 3? Verse 3, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What does that mean? And evidently, this was, this was a proverbial saying which referred to a spontaneity, as simply carrying on a normal course of action Uh, during the day. Just going about your regular business. No build-up, no advertising, no need to pre-print t-shirts to commemorate the day and spread the word, no names on plaques, no names on bricks. It's just what we do. And as a result of the lack of fanfare, a lot of people may never find out that we did the good deed. And we're okay with that. Does this mean we should never get caught doing good? (laughs) What about that? And the short answer is this. There's a big difference between doing good in order to be seen and people catching us going about our daily lives doing good. Being generous. Rubbing shoulders with people in the community. Being kind. Being loving. Being helpful. If you're doing that and that's how you live as a follower of Christ, somebody's going to catch you if you do that long enough, right? There might be some confusion at the idea of comparing this passage with chapter 5, verse 16. So what about letting your light so shine before men? 
How do you do that with what we're talking about here in Matthew 6? Uh, chapter 5, 16, Jesus said, Jesus said, same sermon, by the way. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And then 6, 1, Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And I tried to emphasize the key difference there. I hope you heard it. The chapter 5 person might ask, am I doing this good deed, this righteous act, because I love God and because I'm a follower of Christ? And if people notice or, or don't notice, it's no win or loss to me. I've died to my old self. Christ lives in me. I just hope that if someone does notice, that they see Jesus through it. That they might even put their faith in Christ. While the chapter 6, verse 1 person might think, Boy, I sure hope that they notice what I'm doing here. Otherwise, this is a total waste. If they don't notice me, if they don't accept me, approve of me, my day will just be ruined. I'll feel like such a loser. Or, how dare they not acknowledge all the good that I've done for them? That's the last time they'll see a dime from me. There's a conflict here. There's a conflict here between pleasing God and pleasing men. And it's not just pleasing men. This is a pleasing of man for the purpose of receiving their praise. We're not really valuing them. We're using them to get for myself. And then in a religious environment, like the Pharisees describe, what's happening is these people are using God to use man, to please, to satisfy myself. To, to fulfill my own selfish craving, which, by the way, is that ever fulfilled? That's just a bottomless pit, right? Never satisfied. So there, there's a conflict between pointing people to Jesus and pointing people to me. People need to know how awesome I am, or the other, the other side of that, if people don't think I'm awesome, I, I must be a total loss. I must, I must be a loser. But whose opinion matters? Whose opinion is truly accurate? I don't even have a completely accurate view of myself, right? We carry those beams in our eyes and we don't know it. Other people might mistake it and think it's one thing or another, but God has a perfect understanding of who we are. God knows us truly, accurately, perfectly. Is how I relate to other people more important than how I relate to God? More important than my relationship with him? Is receiving the paycheck of people's approval really greater than the reward, the prize granted, a thing bestowed, which is what the other reward means, of being with Christ forever? Of being made to be just like him? Of being his joint heir? of having the privilege of casting our crowns at his feet in worship because all of the good we've done is truly a gift of his grace. Some people use a phrase uh, that goes something like this. That guy is so heavenly minded that he is of no earthly good. I think the way that we could change that phrase to accurately represent what Jesus is saying in this passage today churches that we need to be a heavenly minded people so that we can be of heavenly good 
as long as we are here on this earth. That's what we want to be. A people who are heavenly minded so that we can be of heavenly good as long as we are here on this earth. We belong to a kingdom that is not of this world. And how, how amazing is it that beyond the reward of seeing people see Jesus in us, beyond the reward of being part of God's plan to make disciples and to build his church, in addition to the reward of being with Christ in eternity, in addition to all that, God promises that there will be further reward for us in heaven. How sweet is it that God keeps perfect records and intends to reward us? And we might think, isn't every good thing we do the result of God's grace? Or, or how, could, how could anyone truly do something with a completely pure heart and, and deserve any kind of reward? And yet, God has promised to reward us. In Christ, we can be pleasing to God. We're able to be pleasing to God. We strive for this. And God, in his omniscience, is keeping a perfect record. I don't have to keep track. I don't have to keep a diary of all the things that I did that were good to make sure God gives me what's mine. (laughs) We can simply go along in our daily lives, loving God, loving people, doing what followers of Jesus do. No fanfare, no stress free, right? No stress. No need for attention. I don't, we get to, as we grow, we don't feel the need for the attention. We're just eager to see God use the things that we do to produce much fruit for his glory and for the good of others. And finally, let me, let me ask and answer this question. Where does the motivation for this kind of selfless living come from? We can look at it and say, yeah, I I get how that's not the way to go and this is the way to go. But how? How does that change happen? Where does that motivation even come from? How does a person get to the point where they don't care if anyone gives them credit? How do we grow in seeing and caring about the genuine needs of other people? We actually see it and we actually care. Not just money or clothing or food, certainly those things, but also the needs of their hearts their souls. How, how does a person get freed? Freed up to do these various kinds of good deeds with the right motivation? And the answer is by looking to Jesus in the gospel. Who am I? Who am I? My identity is rooted in Christ. Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. We're all the culture we live in and and maybe sometimes our own hearts, right? We're kind of all about who who is Andy? Who am I? What do people know when they think about me? When in truth, I've been crucified. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When people see me, my desires need to be progressively right as we grow, that people understand Jesus better, that his reputation is built because of how my life is changing. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And what was I like when Jesus died for me? 
And sometimes I think, well, I, I'm not given to that person. That person's all, got all these problems. Exactly. Why did Jesus die for you? Because you didn't have any sin? No, your sin necessitated his death. That's why we needed him, because we were sinners, right? People need our help because they need our help. I was dead. I was a sinner. I was an enemy of God. And he loved us proactively. And how far did Jesus go in order to give me this life? The God of the universe who spoke it into existence, who upholds it by the power of his own word. He took on flesh, dwelt among us. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He died in our place on the cross, taking all of the wrath that we deserve on himself, that we would have forgiveness and eternal life. Jesus gave to us his righteousness. Christ's perfect record put to our account. So when God looks at us, the God who knows all things and is perfectly just, perfectly good, looks at us, he says, not guilty. Because of Jesus. We love because he first loved us. We're not doing good deeds to get payback from God. God has given us everything. So what else are we going to do but be givers? Like our dad. We love because he first loved us. And furthermore, what does my future look like? Is my future contingent on how well I do from here on out? God has promised to complete the work that he started in me. God has promised to make me be just like Jesus Christ. He has made us joint heirs with Christ. We share in his inheritance. There is a reward waiting for us in heaven. Praise God. And God will dwell with his people forever. No more death. No more sickness. No more sin. When we are in that place in that day, we will do everything right for the right reason. With the right motivation. There's going to be no sin in our hearts. There's not going to be a way for us to want to do the right thing for the wrong reason. No hypocrisy. Only enjoying doing what is good. How amazing is that? This is what the God of the universe says about us. He has declared it. And Jesus said if the world hated him, it'll hate us too. So why would we think that we're going to be a big hit down here anyway? We don't have to worry about that anymore. God knows who we are. Christians, God has given us a heavenly mission here on earth. So let's let God take care of our reputations and our report. Let's selflessly love others the same way Jesus loves us and loved us. Let's do good, be loving, giving, generous people for the eternal good of others. Uh, Seeking to meet people's temporary needs where it's truly helpful and more importantly, their eternal needs. And all of this, ultimately, for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great, great love for us. Put on display uh, in the greatest way in the death of Jesus Christ for our sin. Lord, we thank you that you love 
us, that you loved us, knowing everything, knowing us at our worst. You loved us and sent Jesus to die for us, to pay for every sin. God, we thank you for this great love. I do pray that if there would be somebody here today who's never put their faith and trust in Jesus, who has uh, perhaps been trying to be good, feeling like the praise of man is is an indicator that they're going to be saved, that you're going to let them into heaven because they were good enough to please people or to please themselves. God, if there might be somebody like that here today, I pray that you'd open their eyes to the truth that they would see you rightly, see themselves rightly, and understand why Jesus died. And so cry out to you for forgiveness and rescue. God, we thank you that if, if anyone should do that today, you save them. Whoever calls on your name will be saved. And then, God, I pray for us, the church, I pray that you would work in our hearts that we would see the truth of the gospel and work this out in how we relate to other people. That you would use us as a mouthpiece in our actions and in our words to point people to Jesus through acting like you, being like Jesus, giving of ourselves selflessly for the benefit and the good of other people so that uh, knowing that we don't care about our reputation here and, and, and seeing that we still do good anyways, Lord, that that would stick out, be a bright light in a dark world, that we might point people to Jesus. And in so doing in all of that, bring you honor and glory and praise. God, we pray that you would use us in this way. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.